thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. And The Naked Scientist is brought to you by The Rand Show, Joburg's biggest day out from the 25th of March to the 3rd of April at the Johannesburg Expo Center in Nazareth. Dr. Chris, very lovely to Good speak morning. to you. How are you? How are you? I'm, I'm very well, thank well. you. Oh, well, there we speak together there. Listen, um, just before we talk science, I hope you won't mind me asking. It's a question that's been intriguing me for ages, and I know other of the listeners as well. Where does this idea of a naked scientist come from? I mean, you being British <laughs> and all, I assume you're not really sitting there naked, right? But this is the great thing you'd never know, would you? Maybe not. <laughs> see, People I lived in England for week, a though. while. Oh, really? Can you, uh, well, can you know you what funny bunch we are then, don't you? But, um, <laughs> I mean, people can come along next week and they'll see for themselves because I will be there in the flesh, if you excuse the pun, because we're going to do some special events for 702 on Thursday, but also at the RAND show because I'm coming to do some special shows and demonstrate some and showcase some amazing science for the RAND show across the Easter weekend. So I'm hoping a whole bunch of people are going to come along and say hello because it'd be lovely to see everybody and, uh, and catch up with some sunshine, which we don't have much of that here either. Well, there you go, people. Forget about James Bond, Dr. Chris Smith, Rand Show. Go there and speak to him and see. Please, somebody report back about the nakedness. We'd like to hear tweet, you know, Facebook, all that kind of stuff. Uh, to more serious issues, uh, Chris, you want to talk about polluted air and how it affects unborn babies. Yes, well, one of the things that always strikes me, and, and really this is a bit pot-calling kettle black, because London has been condemned as one of the worst cities for air pollution in the world. It's in the top 20 for worst air, and it's about to be fined 300 million by the European Union, part of the reason perhaps why we might be leaving the European Union. But whenever I fly into Johannesburg, I always notice there's a very, very thick pall of, of pollution mm. hovering above that city. And, you know, you sit there in the rush hour traffic in the morning and, and it really is very bad, the air pollution. And one has to wonder, well, what is this doing to health uh, of the people both who are in that traffic jam, breathing that in, but also... If there's a lady who's pregnant, what could this be doing to her unborn children? The World Health Organization in 2012 estimated that one person in every eight died prematurely owing to exposure to air pollution. And they now describe in their own words air pollution as one of the world's largest single environmental health risks. Well, there is an interesting study that's out this week. It's actually published by a lady called Amy Margolis. It's in the Journal of Child Psychology and Psychiatry. And what she's done is to ask the question, well, if we take women who are pregnant and exposed to pollution and follow up the children that are born, what happens to those children? So they've got blood samples from 462 pregnant women. They then follow up 462 children as they grow up to the age of 11. And they make various measures of their behaviour. And in those children whose mothers have got signs in their blood of having had significant pollution exposure, by the age of seven to nine, 
the children of those mothers show behavioural differences to the children who are born to mothers who are less pollution exposed and by the age of 11 these, dis these differences are statistically significant and they include a paucity of the ability to self-regulate your behaviour. These children become more impulsive, they're more likely to do things that might lead into risk-taking behaviour, for example. So she's saying this is not causal, this is an association study. In other words, they've, ob they've observed this correlation. You don't know for sure that it's just down to the pollution, but it certainly uh, fits biologically and it's biologically plausible in what we understand about how pollution affects a developing brain. And they speculate that, that exposure to this pollution early in pregnancy might affect the development of the parts of the brain that are subsequently used to regulate your behaviour and exert self-control. If you mm. retard the development or affect the development of those brain circuits, it could be linked to conditions like ADHD, autism, depression, anxiety, and, and other low mood states. I mean, sure, that is that is such a scary thing. I mean, we all know about alcohol in pregnancy, being careful with what medication you use, what you eat, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you can't really control the air, can you? So, I mean, how worried should mothers be in Cape Town or Johannesburg, where we know the the pollution at times can get terribly bad? Well, you make a very good point, which is that there's lots and lots of legislation in some countries and certainly lots of public health messages about you should limit your intake of drugs and alcohol when you're pregnant because this is going to go into the baby and it may affect the development of your baby. But people just don't see this invisible threat which is hovering in the air. And, and it's very, very uh, high risk now. We've got lots of vehicles on the roads, lots of industry th doing things. And what it's going to take are people putting pressure on politicians and saying look, we need to sort this out because it's going to harm the health of the next generation and we've got to clean up our act, not just in, in any one city but across the whole world. We might soon see everybody wearing these face masks like you so often see in the Far East, you know, all the pregnant women with Well, face I mean, masks. unfortunately, the particles we're talking about, though, are so tiny that to them, those, those face masks, the gaps between the fibres in the face mask look like an open window in a wall. So actually, they don't really do any good at all. You, you need professional standard personal protection equipment to filter out these things which are which are tiny molecules sure that's scary it's now your turn to also ask the naked scientist your questions um dr chris your first question is from tony in johannesburg um tony welcome uh good morning good morning Melanie, and good morning chris uh just a strange question if i was somehow hypothetically to land on another planet in our solar system would I see the stars as we see at night, like Orion, Pegasus, Carina, the same way we do on Earth, or just on the radio? Oh, hi, Tony. Well, obviously the stars that you see in the sky are stars which are in our own galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, and those stars do not move relative to the Earth because they're so far away that the movements the Earth makes are very, very inconsequential. So relative to each other in the night sky, those stars are all going to be in the same sorts of positions. The, the stars in the sky that will be different are the stars which are planets because the planets get their names from the Greek word planetes, which means wandering. The Greeks noticed that some stars in the sky move around, others stay in the same place. Those ones that move around are the planets because obviously they're orbiting in our cosmic neighbourhood and their position relative to the Earth changes a lot uh, over the course of a year as they go around on their orbit and we go around on ours. So some of the stars are going to look different, but the vast majority of the stars, because they're a long way away from us and the movements of the planets are very inconsequential in comparison, you're, not, you're, you're therefore going to see pretty much the same skyscape, give or take, based on which bit of the sky you're looking at. Thank you for that, uh, Tony. Anthony and Santon, you have a question relating to brains, is it? 
rain, actually. Hi. Oh, rain. Um, yeah, I, I looked at my rain gauge this morning. I think this is quite a simple one, but um, I looked at my rain gauge and saw that we've got almost 100 mils of rain this week. It always occurs to me that um, I, I, I think it's a strange unit of measure to measure rain in millimeters because surely we should be reading, uh, measuring rain in something to do with volume, some kind of container. So, so where does the millimeter measurement come from when it comes to, to rainfall? Uh, what they're doing is saying, well, if I if I take my rain gauge and there's a millimetre in there, that's actually the equivalent of a millimetre across a square metre of ground, which is a litre. And so it does equate to a... I think we have just lost uh, Dr. Chris there. You see, that's what happens when you have um, somebody sitting on the other side of the world. Uh, telephone lines go down, right? Now, I have to tell you, the first time I was on Irish radio... Um, it was, in fact, that time a live show, and I was on the show for a few minutes, and the whole radio station, not just phone line, no, no, the whole radio station, and it was the national broadcaster, went off air. Now, at that time, I absolutely stuck to the story that I had nothing to do with it, but I can absolutely guarantee you people, I didn't touch anything, so this is nothing to do with me. Bel blame Telcom, the Guptas, whoever you want to, it wasn't me. But we'll try and fix this, and we'll take more of your calls for the Naked Scientist after this. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Welcome back. Well, before we were so rudely interrupted, Dr. Chris, you were talking to Anthony about measuring rain, not brains, as the guys told me here, which makes a lot more sense in millimeters. <laughs> so maybe you can just repeat that for us. Yeah, no, I was saying that um, your millimeter in the rain gauge equates to a millimeter of water over a certain surface area on the ground, which, therefore, if you've got a certain height of water over a surface area, that equates to a volume, because if you do the length times the width times the height, you get a volume. So it does actually equate to a volume, but we measure a height. Thank you for that. Um, Dr. Sochen in Johannesburg, thank you for holding. You have a question about a knife. Yes, um, you can call me Jeff, but what I'm interested in, I read some time ago about designing a, a pyramid with a certain base area and a certain height. And if you place something with a sharp edge inside that, it's supposed to be, become sharper. Is there, is there any basis? Is this a fact? Or is it was in a book called Amazing Facts that I can remember. Uh, sounds like someone misled you with the title of that book because it sounds like amazing science fiction, if I'm honest. Um, there's no reason why making something of a certain shape should in any way influence a cutting edge or, in fact, any object. Why should that happen? There's no obvious reason in physics for that to happen. I've not come across any evidence. I've heard that claimed. Um, I'm certain it's a myth. I don't think there's any evidence whatsoever that building a pyramid should keep a blade sharper because why should that happen? I can't think of a rational reason, but, but in more importantly, haven't seen any evidence. So if anyone's got some evidence, do please send it in. But I think probably, Jeff, it's rubbish. Well, and now we can ask Stanley. Stanley, I hope this isn't also a rubbish. But um, Stanley, you actually seem to have a really interesting question around vitamin D. Hi, I just lost that. Are you still with me? I am with you. You can use speaking to Dr. Chris if you want to put your okay. question. Please, thank you. Hi, Chris. I'm an avid listener of your podcasts. I think they are beautifully presented. Thank you for that. Um, I'm, I'm interested in, in the sunlight, uh, sunlight that promotes vitamin D in the bloodstream. Um, 
I seem to have heard you guys saying something about the fact that sunlight through the eyes also has an, an impact on vitamin D. Because there's some kind of receptors in the eyes that are perhaps more sensitive to that. Is that true? Hello, good morning. Thank you for the kind words. Um, there's two different phenomena going on here. Sunlight which reaches your skin reacts with, and specifically the ultraviolet in the sunlight, reacts with cholesterol and it leads to the formation of 125-dihydroxycholecalciferol, otherwise known as vitamin D, um, and that's because you, you also send the molecules through your kidney and your liver to give them the 1 and the 25-dihydroxy bit. They are then involved in absorbing calcium from uh, the things that you eat and making you put that calcium into your bones. Light that goes into your eyes does two things. One of the things it does is to bind to your rods and cones so that you can see. Uh, that's visible light, what we're calling the visible spectrum. But there are also cells in the back of the eye which are called intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells which are not connected to the seeing part of your brain but they are connected to another part of your brain where your body clock is located. And these intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells are sensitive to blue light, like a nice deep blue sky. And when they see that signal, they send these discrete nerve impulses into the body clock, and, set, and that is a strong resetting signal for the body clock. Now, this is what enables you to get over jet lag, and it means that you know when to set your clock to wake you up in the morning and when you should be feeling tired at night. That will have effects right through your body and it will also have an effect of setting the clocks running in all the cells in your bodies because all of your cells in your body have their own clocks. This will have an effect on metabolism and it almost certainly will have an effect on how you do your vitamin D and because it gets you up in the morning it will put you out in the sunshine and make you make more vitamin D in your skin in the sunshine but it won't directly lead to the formation of vitamin, C, uh, vitamin D in your eye. But what an interesting question. Thank you for that, Stanley. Um, just before I go to Becky in Pretoria, just remember you can still send us in your questions or call us in on 011-883-0702 or Cape Town 021-446-0567. Becky in Pretoria, you have a question around DNA? Yes, good morning, Chris. And uh, uh, I have a question here which is puzzling and dividing my family. You know, I've uh, been taking a DNA test to my father who's normal. But I just want to know how accurate are the DNA test because uh, they failed me. And I know the man has been my father for a long time. Uh, is there any percentages that regards as your father or otherwise? I don't know. Please help. I guess you're asking how does DNA fingerprinting work so that we can work out who is related to who? And the simple answer is um, everybody is unique because there are parts of your DNA which you inherit from your mother and parts which you inherit from your father. And so you inherit a unique combination of genetic letters which make up your DNA code. There are regions of the DNA code which are very, very highly variable between one, one person and another. And because you inherit one group of highly variable regions from your mother and one from your father, if we look at those highly variable regions, we can easily find pieces which are distinct and unique to you so what scientists do is take some cells out of your body get the dna out of those cells then they cut the dna up with a molecular pair of scissors called a restriction enzyme and this makes short pieces of dna which they then separate out on 
uh, what we call a gel, and then you can see how big the bands are. You get little bands like a ladder of corresponding to the different sized pieces of DNA. And if we focus in on those areas corresponding to these highly variable parts of your DNA, we can see a unique pattern that corresponds to your father, a unique pattern that corresponds to your mother. And when we put you there, we should be able to see that the same bands line up with both you and your dad and you and your mum. And that tells us that you're related to both your mum and your dad. And uh, more recently, scientists have also gone a step further and they're sequencing, actually reading the letters, the DNA letters in an individual. Because if you do that, you can also prove that one person's got certain combinations of, of DNA letters uh, that are unique to them and their mum and their dad showing that they're all a family. Becky, does that answer your question? Oh no, Becky's already gone, sorry about that. Um, Godfrey from Pretoria, thank you for holding on for so long. Put your question to Dr. Chris. Thanks for the privilege. Now, uh, uh, a couple of a couple of years ago, about four years ago, I, I, I was diagnosed. I, I got a group at the back of my head, just above my, my left ear. It was diagnosed to be what we call lipoma, lipoma. And at that time, I was told that uh, there, there is no emergency for an operation unless it changes in, in size. But over the years, it has grown tremendously. So my question is, uh, uh, what are the risks for any operation? Uh, because I'm planning to go for an operation uh, in, in, in the days ahead. Uh, what are the risks for that operation? And what are the causes of lipoma? Okay, so what is a lipoma? Who has them? And how can we get rid of them? A lipoma, anything with an oma on the end, means some kind of growth. And it's usually a benign growth. And lipe means the cells that contain fats, adipocytes. So this is a benign harmless growth of the cells that store fat under the skin they're very common lots of people have them they're more common the older we get most people have one or two here and there and they just form a sort of a soft blob in the skin which if you rub your hand over it, it's almost like a jelly if you were to shake a jelly it would wobble you'll feel this this soft lump wobbling in the skin and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger over time it won't harm you because it can't grow invasively like a cancer and it can't spread around the body like a cancer and only very rarely do they become complicated but they can become unsightly and they become can become a nuisance if you get them in certain parts of the body they can catch on bra uh, elastic for example or rub or catch on clothing um, so sometimes people do elect to have them removed even for cosmetic reasons they're actually very easy to remove because they are a, a distinct entity from the underlying skin so the surgeon normally makes a cut across the skin and can, sh can actually shell out the lipoma from that area. The downside is that sometimes because they've become quite big they've stretched the skin a bit over themselves so they, there may be an excess of skin and the surgeon will have to work out how much skin to remove to then bring the edges gently and carefully together to get a good co cosmetic result. But most, uh, most surgeons and plastic surgeons are very very good at doing this, that's what they earn their money for. So it's on the whole a very safe procedure and, uh, and one that won't take very long either. It can be done under local anaesthetic usually, just numb the area and get the tumour out. We have time for one or two questions, most probably just one. Um, Corey, you also have a medical question uh, around malaria, is it? Yeah, that's correct. Yes, hi, Dr. Chris. Um, Dr. Chris, I'm busy recovering two weeks now from malaria, but now all of a sudden I've got a shortness of breath and an increase in my heart rate. Is that normal or is it um, just something that happens with the malaria now? Well, first of all, um, what is malaria, first of all? Malaria is a parasitic infection. This organism 
is picked up from people who are infected with an infectious form malaria by a mosquito. The mosquito picks up the malaria parasite when it takes a blood meal. The malaria parasite infects the mosquito. It grows and increases its numbers in the mosquito. Then it goes into the salivary gland of the mosquito. And when the mosquito goes and bites another uninfected person, because the mosquito puts some of its saliva in first when it bites somebody to stop their blood from coagulating some of the mosquitoes some of the malaria parasites are, are transmitted into the person at that time they then go round the body of the infected person and they replicate or grow in the red blood cells of an infected person when they grow in the red blood cells they a damage the red blood cell but b they encourage the immune system to attack the red blood cell. So you can become anemic as a consequence of having malaria, and when you're anemic, you have too few red blood cells, and if you have too few red blood cells, you can't get enough oxygen around your body. This will make you feel tired. It will mean that your heart also has to pump more blood more often around your body to get enough oxygen around your tissues. So that's why you might be feeling a bit tired. I would recommend, if you haven't been to see a doctor, go and see a doctor, get a blood test, and, and make sure, A, that you have got malaria and that you have cleared the malaria, and B, make sure that you are not uh, anemic um, and therefore might need some help. Thank you very much for that. And thank you, Dr. Chris, as always. It's so interesting to, to hear you speak. Uh, slightly intimidating, may I add, but very interesting. Remember that Dr. Chris will be in South Africa next week, um, I'm sure with clothes on. He will be at the Rand Show. And in the meantime, you can visit him at his website, thenakedscientist.com. Thank you, Dr. Chris. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.